your damned young idiot war starts at midnight. Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, Chris is once again paying penance for his cinematic sins. With the recent passing of the great Gene Wilder, we decided to put our review of The Fits on the shelf and bring you a very special war crimes review of the 1980 comedy starring Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, Stir Crazy. Then in special features, we're trying something a little different with the Fantasy Film Course Draft. Love movies? Yep. Love fantasy football? You know it. Love academia? Uh yeah? Well, get ready, because we're combining them all together as we go week by week attempting to craft the ultimate semester-long film history course. But we've got to act fast, because once a film has been selected, it's removed from the draft pool. Sound fun? Yeah. Sound weird? Yes. Well, stay tuned and find out just how fun and weird it actually gets. And finally, we will wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Uh, Chris, I don't know if you heard this, but Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge... Uh, apparently got a 10-minute ovation at its world premiere in Venice. Oh, really? I hadn't heard about that. Uh, yeah, I think it was at the uh, Lido Film Festival, and uh, it it is not a festival commonly known for having long-standing ovations, but uh, apparently, apparently Hacksaw Ridge just killed there. Hmm. And so the, the news cycles are spinning up, even outside of the film world, talking about Mel Gibson making a comeback and what that means as far as separating an artist uh, the artist as a person from the artist as his body of work. So what do you think? Is Hollywood ready to love a Mel Gibson movie again? Uh, you know, that's interesting and it's promising. And it's something that Hunter and I have actually discussed not too long ago on, on the show is, you know, sort of, I, I'm ready for a Mel Gibson comeback. I, I hope the, you know, film going community is as well. I guess it's, it's one of those things where like, I, I totally understand being put off by his personal politics and those sorts of things. But I also generally like the films he makes. And if I mean, if we if we are willing to put aside, you know, differences with someone like Woody Allen or Roman Polanski or, you know, other other artists separate their personal lives from their art. Um, I, I do think you can't, you know, pick and choose. It's you got to you got to kind of dive into it. uh and, and, and take them all. And so, uh, this is, this sounds promising. And honestly, have, have you seen this trailer? Uh, yes, I did. I'm not like, I'm not fully sold on the trailer. So it honestly kind of surprises me that, uh, he's gotten such a warm reception. Like it looks all right. Uh, to me, it looks like it could have been a Clint Eastwood movie. Like if you told me that yeah. was a Clint Eastwood movie, I would I would totally buy that. Yeah, that's that's a really good because it's like Andrew Garfield is not nailing his like southern accent. Um it it, it has those little like it doesn't look awful. It looks it looks interesting, it looks entertaining. Um I I you know, I I would be curious to know exactly what, you know, after, you know, after the standing ovation and everything, what sort of the the audience reaction was or the the press reaction was because it I mean, people for a while were loving to chew up and spit out Gibson. So th- yeah. this is this is curious. He, so, you know, Chris, you know, I'm a fan of uh, Mel Gibson movies. Um, Apocalypto was maybe my favorite movie of that year. I, I, I really, really liked Apocalypto. I, I think he's a I think Mel Gibson's a madman. 
But I kind of <laughs> think you want to see the movies that a madman makes. You yeah. don't want to listen to a completely sane, you know, musician. You don't want to watch a completely sane director's movies. It would be boring. You you want to see what a crazy man makes sometimes. Yeah. And Apocalypto was a movie that you kind of had to be a crazy man to even attempt. I mean, no, that's that's uh, fair. And especially, I mean, he was doing a lot of things, not just in, you know, making a movie that was, uh, you know, it, it seemed like just a movie that had no commercial legs at all. But also, I mean, on the technological side of things, he was dealing with, uh, you know, at the time, still fairly primitive digital technology and things like that, which is not the type of thing that you would necessarily imagine someone like Mel Gibson to delve into. Right. It, it was it was groundbreaking for its time to some extent. And if you looked at it, it was a really good looking movie. I remember it being yeah. a really good looking movie. I I only have one problem with Apocalypto, and that's that um, the whole flooding sequence. Uh, y- yeah, um, I, I have a real problem with because people yeah, are buoyant. Yeah. Uh, if, if I was in a hole that started flooding, I would um, tread you, water, you know, just just hold on to the wall and keep my lungs filled with air. Um, yeah. and then, and then eventually you would actually make it out of the hole, but that's, uh, that's probably a bit of a nitpick. So, so what, what Gibson is good at, uh, I think is, is having those really driven characters, um, mm-hmm. who have a, a single minded mission. And this film is about Desmond T. Doss, who is a pacifist in world war two, who ends up saving the lives. It's a true story. He saved the lives of uh, 75 soldiers, uh, during a battle in the Pacific in World War II. So it, that sort of drive might be something that he's really good at capturing. This might end up being a really good movie. Well, and I, I do think it is interesting to see someone like Mel Gibson, who, especially in his directorial career, has been um, criticized some for, uh, you know, glamorizing or or just falling in love with his violence, you know, in, in things like Braveheart and um, the passion of the Christ or, you know, he, he uses violence in various ways, but people a lot of times, you know, pinpoint it as like, Oh, he's, he's just, he's almost in love with the violence. And so this story about a guy who is inherently the opposite of that, who is inherently, um, you know, all about his, his view that is, I, I think violence is wrong. I I'm interested to see what he does uh, with that story, and it, you know, it already it sounded like people are uh, are digging it. So, um, in spite I, I, of the trailer, I'm I'm excited, and I think we'll find out more this November when Hacksaw Ridge drops during the Heart of Awards season. <laughs> it does. It's yeah, being no, talked about for Oscars, Chris. I know it's, but it, that's I mean that's a whole nother, and we I'm sure we'll get into this conversation when it when it comes up. But that's a whole nother like the whole Oscar bait thing um, is. You know, it's something that he's he's done all right with in the past. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And uh, you know, in other news, sadder news, um, we learned early last week that Gene Wilder passed away, and so uh, we decided that we were going to put our uh, our review we had planned on hold, and instead do a review of a Gene Wilder film I had never seen. So uh, stay tuned, folks, because coming up next is our review of Stir Crazy. Columbia Pictures presents Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Head over half for listening to you. Together again in Stir Crazy. Oh, I can't smell nothing my leg. Only these two guys could dress up like woodpeckers and get framed for robbing a bank. That's right. That's right. We're bad. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Stir Crazy. 
Rated R. The whole world was just like me. Coming soon to a theater near you. Every so often, we like to own up to our cinematic sins on the show by discussing a seminal film from the past that one of us has somehow overlooked. These reviews are shamefully dubbed our war crimes. When news broke early last week that comedy legend Gene Wilder had passed, it only felt fitting to take the opportunity to dive a little deeper into Wilder's filmography. After a bit of back-and-forth deliberation, we landed on Sidney Poitier's 1980 buddy comedy, Stir Crazy. Now, with a 50 on Metacritic and a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, Stir Crazy may not be the most obvious pick for a war crimes review, but it offers a look at a pivotal moment in Gene Wilder's career that, until now, I've completely neglected his historic partnership and friendship with comedian Richard Pryor. Stir Crazy's minimal plot allows the chemistry between these two comedy greats to shine straight through the absurdity. When Pryor's aspiring New York actor Harry Monroe and Wilder's earnest but penniless playwright Skip Donahue decide to skip town in search of better jobs and greener pastures, they soon find themselves in... The biggest pickle of their lives. Skip and Harry are mistaken for armed robbers and wind up serving 125 years of hard time in the sweltering California desert. Jake, I'd be lying if I claimed Stir Crazy was a cinematic marvel of its time or ours, but I'm still curious. What is it about the dynamic between Wilder and Pryor that stands the test of time? And furthermore, why didn't you tell me that this film was a direct prequel to Breaking Bad? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean a prequel to Breaking Bad? You, you don't know what I'm talking about. No. Okay, so um, watching, like, in the first, like, I mean, it's, it's the opening credits, so it's got to be the first, like, three or four or five minutes of this movie, I notice a name in the opening credits, and that name is Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike in Breaking Bad, the kind of bald, curmudgeon uh, old, like, he's, he's sort of the heavy for uh, Saul, the, the lawyer. Yeah, Mike Ehrmantraut, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. He is the uh, he's the inmate who is sort of the warden's right man right hand man. You Craig, know, there's Craig T. Nelson. No, 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 no. The inmate. There's there's a scene. Is that him? That's him. He's he's always wearing he's always wearing a cowboy hat and like uh, and aviator glasses. He's the guy that puts the lock on the uh, on the gate. So so here's my question. When when Jonathan Banks was on Breaking Bad, why did they not uh, when he was on a uh, community? Why did they not address that? He looks like an old Jeff Winger, because as a young man in that, I thought that could have been Joel McHale <laughs> when he's in his cowboy costume and season That's one of community. He 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 kind of had that same look to him. Yeah. So but uh, that is I did not know he was in that. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell. Like, I only knew to look for him because I saw the name. Um, I mean, you can still kind of hear his voice if you look for it, but he's, he's kind of doing a bit of a, like a Southern, a Southern draw and, you know, he's under a hat and glasses and he's got like facial hair and hair on his head. So it's, it's a little difficult to, to see him, but yeah, that's totally him. He kind of ran that prison yard. We didn't see much of it, but we were told he ran that prison yard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that is, that is an issue. Let's, let's hold the issues for a moment. And let, let's talk about let's talk about my my, my first question. Uh, Wilder and Pryor, how good are they in this? They they are they are the reason this movie works uh, mm-hmm. as well as it does. It does. Have you seen any Wilder and Pryor ever? No, that's what I was saying in in the intro. Is like this is the first thing that I've seen of them together on screen. The first thing that I've seen of you know their chemistry. So so um, the, the first thing um, to remember 
is that they were supposed to be together in Blazing Saddles. Yeah, so I knew that. Right. Pryor was supposed to play the sheriff in, in Blazing Saddles. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out. Um, and Wilder wasn't even supposed to be in that movie to begin with. But they found each other later, and they basically had a blast working together from what, what I read. And they, they just wanted to make more movies. This one, they are so different, and their comedic energies are so different, but they complement each other. Wilder isn't just the straight guy. He isn't just mm. playing the straight man. He he is really, really funny in an earnest way. Pryor is really, really funny in this big sort of outlandish way. It it's really good. Yeah, I think I think that complimentary sort of back and forth between them is so it's so perfect for sort of balancing out because Wilder could be a little too dry on his own and not not to like claim that I get bored with Wilder when he's you know, in, in something like, like, I, I mean, I love him like young Frankenstein or Willy Wonka. Or, um, you know, the, I think I've only seen like four or five films with him. Um, but that particularly the character that he's playing here, he's a little, you know, he, he's a straight man. He's very earnest. He's very sincere. He's very, um, he's very optimistic. Whereas you have prior who's generally has the bigger, uh, performance I guess throughout most of it, you know, he's, he's the one who's doing like funny faces and that sort of thing. And has, um, if anyone has sort of catchphrases or, or repeatable lines, they're probably the ones coming from prior. Uh, but there's something about his pragmatism, uh, that I don't think like you don't get enough of it. I would like to see more of that, that dynamic, but like, like when they both get arrested and Gene Wilder's, basic approach is like, Oh no, everything's fine. Everything will be okay. And, uh, Richard Pryor's approach is like, Oh no, this is like, I mean, when the, the cops are asking them questions, Gene Wilder's like complying and answering the questions and Pryor's just denying everything. He's like, no, that's not our van. No, those aren't, we, we, I know nothing. And, and, and Pryor, when he gets put up against, he's like, how can I help you gentlemen is basically what he's saying to the cops when they're arresting him. Like mm-hmm. he, he is so, you mean Wilder. Wilder, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's like, how can I help help you guys? Before I talk about the the performances, uh, while we're still talking about them as a duo, uh, if our special features this time was not our uh, fantasy film draft, it would definitely be on like the best comedic duos of all time. And I would challenge you to name anybody who who is in the top tier with these guys because this is to me, I. I I've seen Stir Crazy a lot. Uh, uh, see no evil, hear no evil. I've, I've I've seen their stuff, and man, they are so good together. If if it was strictly cinematic, I would be hard pressed to. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, and actually a collaborator with Gene Wilder, would be uh, Mel Brooks and um, uh, Carl Reiner. Yeah, that which is another similar like straight man and crazy man. Um, sort of dynamic they had with the yeah. you know the two thousand year old man and all that stuff. We and, and we don't have to stay on that long. Uh, I just wanted to make sure we pointed out how great they are together. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think they did what four movies together. They they did four. Um. Oh, okay. So what what did you just say? Hear no evil, see no evil. Is that the one where one of them is blind and one of them is? Deaf? Yes. Yes. Okay. And it used to show on Comedy Central a lot. That's how I saw that one. Okay. I was completely unaware of that until somebody brought it up uh, like earlier last week, you know, after after hearing the news. Um but there's there's that, there's Silver Streak, and then there's there's at least one other one, right? Uh they did they did one in nineteen ninety one called Another You, which I have not seen and they were okay. they were older and uh 
from the IMDb rating, probably not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's, I mean, the the thing about even because stir crazy, it's not, it's not a, you know, something that necessarily needs to go down in history, but there is so much in their performances, their chemistry together. That is so good. Like you can tell, you can really tell that they are friends off screen as well as on screen. Like that, that chemistry is just like so blatantly visible that, um, I mean, it carries it. It carries you through a movie, which honestly, like, I would say the first two thirds of this movie, I I kind of loved for what it is. Yes, and apparently they uh, improved a lot of their scenes together, and that would uh, make sense. It it worked because it, it this was um, the first uh, hundred million dollar grossing movie by a black director. Uh, mm-hmm. It was one of the biggest hits the studio well, think- ever ever had yeah i think it was number three that year i mean and and that was behind empire strikes back and i can't remember what the what was number two but i mean it it did well at the box office right and uh at the time of release i'm looking uh columbia pictures uh, this was their third highest grossing film ever behind kramer versus kramer and close encounters of the third kind so it was a big hit big hit for the studio the it, it really it really worked and and i know that from uh, this is one of the movies my dad really likes. And mm-hmm. if I had to guess, he probably saw it in theaters. And I grew up knowing this was like an important, funny movie um, that we watched on TV and all that stuff. So I, yeah, I grew yeah. up, I grew up knowing, you know, Grossberger and all that stuff. So uh, what I guess I, I have a very different perspective in like not having that, um, you know, that, that thing that we talk about sometimes on the show, the nostalgic glaze of, of seeing it, uh, from childhood, did you pick up on anything new this time around? Did it did it change for you? Did did seeing it as an adult alter your your view of this film? Yes, it's it's probably not the it's probably not like a a hundred percent must see classic mm-hmm. on its own. But you have to see Wilder and Pryor perform together, and this is probably the best of them. The the thing that I was so struck by is the first I don't know it's probably 15 or 20 minutes before they decide like the actual plot kicks in. They decide that they are moving to California, um, moving to the, the is it the golden coast that he, uh, or something like that, that the sun belt, the, the sun belt. That's what, that's what Wilder's, um, constantly saying. Um, but I was perfectly content with, you know, what they like, they did such a good job of sort of establishing, making you care about the characters that, I wasn't even like, oh gosh, when are they going to get arrested so the good stuff starts happening? No, it, it, it just just when they sat down at that bar and you kind of see that Wilder's successful with the ladies and uh-huh. Pryor and him are friends and he's like, uh, I got fired today and they're celebrating it. It it just it's a really funny scene and it works. You could watch these guys do anything together. Well, it's I I'm so interested by how like I mean basically the opening credits are the one of the most cynical things I've I've seen in a while. Um, you know, it's it's the streets of New York. They're basically it's basically Travis Bickle's New York. You know, this this came out what six years later, but still, it's very dirty, grimy, um, gross sort of New York. And no one's the the basic like idea that you get watching that that intro is no one is friendly. Everyone hates everyone. It's it's just sort of a scuzzy place, a place where you just keep your head down, and try to go, and that's you know sort of the the jumping off point for hey, how about we move to the Golden Coast and or the the, the Sun Belt. New York as like a trashy hellscape was a like I don't want to say it was a trope, but it influenced a lot of 
films in that time. And, and you can see it even even in like Escape from New York, where the premise of it is New York got so bad, we just turned it into a prison because why not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or even something like Ghostbusters or, you know, it's it, it played its own character in varying degrees in the 70s and 80s. Um, what I what I found interesting, though, is I thought I was in for a very cynical comedy um, with that setup. And I was amazed at how um, sweet hearted it was. Yeah, once it, it, you kind of get around. Big, it has a big heart. It, yeah, it really does. And and a lot of that a lot of that rides on Gene Wilder and, and on his character Skip and his constantly like trying to find the good in people and trying, you know, like in the bar, breaking up that fight, um, getting <laughs> going over to talk to the the mass murderer, like all of those little moments where you he's that character is constantly just curious about human nature, which, you know, plays into his whole like w- w- aspiring to be a playwright thing. He's and, just and I, I believe he wants to be a playwright. He I believe yeah. he's a good hearted. Pr- Wilder's act. I, I don't I can't say enough about his acting. He really sells it when a different actor maybe wouldn't. And you go, oh, he doesn't really believe in human. Oh, absolutely. Like, he, absolutely. When he goes up to talk to the guys who end up co- actually committing the, the bank robbery. Uh-huh. It, it, it's just like you really associate with Richard Pryor, which is you would expect, um, you know, Prior yeah, would be the source of comedy. Don't even approach him. Yeah, well, and you would expect Prior to be, you know, the the source of comedy, and Wilder to just be a straight man. Mm-hmm. And it's not. They they take turns doing that, and that's why it's so good. I think the scene that shows them taking turns doing it the best is when they have their freak out going to the cell the first time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When they they go quote unquote stir crazy. <laughs> yes. Oh man, when he so when Wilder like knocks the the baton out of the guy's hand and starts riding him <laughs> piggyback. At that point, it was just like I don't even know what this movie is about anymore, but I don't care. It's great. I I just love how how Pryor. You can tell they really care about each other because Pryor's just trying to get Wilder not you know beat by a guard, and then mm-hmm. it immediately changed places when the other one loses his mind. Yeah, it's it's well, great. And and there's also that like whenever they first go into the holding cell and uh, they're doing their whole like they're moving and and doing their I guess at that time they would have probably you know, it's you know, jive walking or, or something to that to that effect you know they're trying to look big and tough and the way that they both like even as they are very different personalities they're still you see why they're friends because they're still kind of coming from the same place and they're still the same sort of archetypal character as far as. Um, there's a bit of insecurity and there's a bit of like, they're maybe not the most masculine men. And so, you know, they're, they're both artists. And so being thrown in the pokey, um, it, it's a real terrifying, uh, experience for them. That to me is the classic scene from this movie. If you, if you were going to watch one scene from it, watch them get thrown in the holding cell. That is by far the funniest part. And when the, the bigger guy asked Pryor to light a cigarette and Pryor just oh, can't yeah. strike the match. Oh, but, oh shit. Oh shit. It's, it's, I mean, that is, that is and the And then funniest. strikes it off his chest hair. It was great. <laughs> He's just cursing it's, the whole time. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, it is, that was funny as a kid. I didn't know if it would hold up and I feel sorry for my neighbors because I was watching it in the middle of the night and laughing. <laughs> Just laughing really, really loud, belly laughs the entire time through that. No, I see. I I feel like this is one of those movies where if the first like two thirds was on like the first hour and a half was on TV, I would stop and watch up until about the rodeo. Like there's it's and it's it's maybe not 
you know, it's probably, it's below a classic, but it has enough really just fantastic moments. And, and the, the play between them is great. I mean, honestly, the place where this movie falls apart is when it tries to have more of a plot yeah. because there's not enough structure to it to pay off. Um, like the, the attorney's cousin who goes and works at the strip joint, like it, it's literally just, you get one scene and, and then she finds the guys off and, and then they get like captured off screen. There's just a whole bunch of things that happen off screen. I mean, it's like, like you were talking about with Jonathan Banks, we're told that he's a enforcer, but never actually see it. There's a lot of sort of laziness there, but, um, the comedy works really well. Yeah, it, it. I think it's the movie is an excuse to get them getting used to prison life and everything mm-hmm. else around it is just to make it a movie. Um, I do I do like that they live in a universe where if they catch the real killers, it's cool if you escaped from prison. <laughs> right. Well, like, that, that's I mean, that that plays perfectly into like because they meet up with the the lawyer and his cousin um, after they, they've escaped and uh, they basically say, oh, no, it's cool. The other guys were captured. And then they're just like. Yeah, okay. Let's let's move on to somewhere else. Like, what it, I liked what I liked about Gene Wilder in this movie, I liked that when he met the attorney's cousin, I I bought that he really did win her over that quickly because he is such like an earnest person. You yeah. could see what she would see in him. It wasn't just like movie stuff. It, yeah, and it they, felt they established like a good connection. Him, they established him enough, like in the bar scene before and in like he has he has sort of this vulnerability that you could see being attractive. Um, I mean, this still doesn't pass like a Bechdel test. Um, the, the women are still very much objects, um, to, to the men, but not as, I mean, that, that's another thing is a movie that came out in 1980. Um, there's a lot of things that from like a more modern perspective are maybe a little problematic, but at the same time, like, like you compare, I, I forget the character's name, but it's the guy, um, who so, tells, uh, Richard Pryor that he can get him a cheeseburger. Like that. Uh, oh, uh, his name I'm looking at IMDb is Rory Schulbrand, which he said was his uh, maiden name. Okay, yeah, right, 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 and and that's so he's he's very obviously this this gay prisoner. Um, but and and there are some things you know they they have him dressing in drag by the end and that that sort of thing. But watching it, I was honestly sort of amazed at the restraint because I think that character is treated better than like Tracy Morgan in the Adam Sandler version of the longest yard. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like a a hateful portrayal or anything like that. He was just a, like a prison character. He still has dignity. He's, they play up, you know, they, they just a little bit, they play up the fact that, Oh, he's a, he's a gay prisoner, but it's not, that's not the main focus of his character at all. Like he's actually, he's more, he's almost like, uh, is it red in, uh, in, uh, yeah, oh, uh, he's you know he's the guy who can get you things. Uh, so you bring up Shawshank Redemption. Do you think that this movie is the definitive prison comedy? If we're going to talk about prison movies, <laughs> I don't know. I I haven't seen it. Like there's there are so many prison comedies I haven't seen, and uh, you know, and also there are, there are some pretty comedic parts in uh, Cool Hand Luke. So, um, <laughs> which is uh, just unfair. But uh, I, I'm not willing to go out on that limb because uh, I feel like I have too many war crimes in that um, in that that's sub 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 genre. That that's that's fair. But to to me, it's especially the part where they I, I know I said this, but the part where they get locked up is like the classic scene. Like I don't yeah, think anything else can, can make 
can can do that any funnier than that did. And there are parts of this that are are sort of definitive. I'll go out on a this, this is a big limb, but it is the funniest prison rodeo comedy uh, ever made, Chris. <laughs> That's probably fair. And so let's, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, about the rodeo and the warden and all of that. So when the warden is introduced, I was a little worried that I mentioned the Adam Sandler version of longest yard earlier. Uh, I was a little worried that this was going to be sort of a retread on, uh, the longest yard. I mean, the Burt Reynolds one came out, I think like five or six years earlier. And so I, I was afraid that it was, we're going to introduce this warden character and it's like, Oh, he's, he's the bad guy. He's like, I could even see the, I was, I was filling in blanks that they didn't end up filling in themselves. But you know, when they first get to the prison, uh, Jose gets off the bus with them and they're talking to him and about, Oh, what are you in for? And he's like, Oh, well, actually I, I went, went up for parole again. They didn't let me out. And when you meet the warden, and hear that Jose is like their top guy. My initial thought was like, oh, the warden's keeping him there because mm-hmm. he wants to win the rodeo. And that may have been the intent, but they never I, really. I, I think they said it again that uh, something about if you're good on the or if you don't help with the rodeo, he'll, they'll, they won't put you up for parole. I, I know there was another line in passing. It was that, that's it was kind of convoluted. Thing they didn't show much of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another another quick like, uh, oh, look at that guy. Do you know who the warden was? Mm, no, he. I recognize the face, but I don't. Okay, he is uh, in No Country for Old Men. He's Tommy Lee Jones's is his brother or his cousin, the guy in the wheelchair who makes a at least a, a pot of coffee every week, even if really? he doesn't drink at all. Yeah, is that him? Yeah, huh. that's him. Huh. Um, which yeah was a, another one of those like I I recognize him. Looked him up, and and sure enough, yeah. Um, I but I yeah you know on the one hand I'm a little disappointed with sort of the conclusion because I I think. The whole they're they're definitely doing a um, I don't know a spoof on sort of the heist thing the action heist but um, you know it's or even like the the breaking out of prison thing the uh, you know something like escape from Alcatraz or whatever I, I think with, the problem is I don't I don't think they're doing enough of a spoof as they are it, doing just it, sort of a poorly executed prison escape slash heist. And and that's and that's exactly my feeling as well. Like the things that work in that um, in that long, long, long escape are still the comedy moments. Like actually, if you listen to the announcer, like the uh, as as people are are trying to escape, like he has all of these things that you can just barely hear, hear muffled. Um, like there was one guy. I think one of the one of the guys was from Oklahoma, and he was in prison for like kidnapping an entire camp of. A busload of camp girls or something. Yeah, I heard that. That was a good one. Uh, there's, there's there's a lot of little things going on in the background where it's just like I I wish it was more. I wish it was more heavy on the comedy in that back half. That's that's really kind of where it falls flat. And um, you're right. Like if it was more spoof, if it was more like even I mean this might be too far, but even if it was more like Austin Powers spoofy, um, may, may have maybe. worked better. I, but I, I do like that it was just sort of a blank slate movie that Wilder and Pryor got to be really funny in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, well, that's the thing it, is like no matter what they're doing, like it's it's great. And that's why the first two thirds works so well, because it doesn't really matter that they're in prison. Um, the characters have reactions to their environment and that works well. And, you know, Wilder's great whenever they're trying to break him. Craig T. Nelson's trying to break him and. You know, he he comes out enlightened from the solitary and he, you know, his back is fixed and all of that. 
Um, but they could have literally, they could have been in any situation and it would have been just as fun, I think. And, and I love that, that Pryor's great when he's going real big, like when they hand down the conviction in court and, and they both just go wild and Pryor tries to fight the lawyer and all that. And he's also Mm -hmm. good when he's, you know, trapped by Grossberger in the cell and just not even really speaking English. Like, he's yeah. good in such a wide range of things in this movie. Yeah. I'm not going to say this is a four-star movie, and I'm not going to say it's a must-see classic. But if if it were available to, to just stream on Netflix, I would say that you absolutely should go and stream it. It is absolutely worth watching. No, I, I agree. Like, this is definitely maybe not a rental, but definitely a streamer. Um, I'd like to close out, if you're, if you're good on this, I'd like to close out sort of the way we, uh, Hunter and I, typically close out summer movies. And that's with, uh, do you have a favorite part of this film? I've, I've said it a bunch, but it's, it's, it's when, when they get put in the holding cell, cell while they're doing karate, uh, <laughs> the, I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the guy who is, who Wilder slaps on the top of his head and then gets up and punches the, the big cowboy guy. Uh huh. Um, that is Apollo Creed's trainer from Rocky. Oh yeah, playing I, a, com- no, a, a I didn't, I didn't vastly different role. Uh, yeah, yeah. But if you loved Rocky as much as you know, in a, an American adult should, Chris, <laughs> I don't. I do um, not. Who was the sweatiest character in this film? <laughs> what? The itchiest, the itch, sweatiest, the itchiest, the sweatiest, the sweatiest would be, no, 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 we're leaving this in. The sweatiest (laughs) would be a whole different category. And I'm not sure the itchiest, the itchiest character in this film. I don't know. There's not, there's not a lot of itchy characters. It might be, um, it might be Meredith, the, uh, the cousin to the, the lawyer, um, just because she's not given a whole lot. Like she's, she's more well-rounded than I expected, but still I would, I would like to see a little more character development, but that's, I think that's a flaw of many aspects of the film, not just, you know, it's treatment of, of women. So, um, there's, there's not too many itchy characters here. Uh, so what was your favorite part, Chris? Um, I really liked the moment where Grossberger, uh, sings his little song in the cell. I um, like that too. It's, it, you know, it reminded me of something like, uh, Rio Bravo. Yeah. You know, the old, uh, Westerns where you have just a break for, um, for someone to, to take a little moment and, and sing and it was great and it felt earned. It didn't feel like it, it felt a little weird, but, um, it felt like I'm okay with this, you know, with, with going with this. And it was, it was just a nice touching moment to show that even this guy who is a mass murderer, like he has multiple levels to him. Like it, it felt more like that than like a, um, handled differently. It could have been like a little more of a continuity problem. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. it's just like, well, why is he, this doesn't make any sense, but I think they built him up enough by that point to, to make that payoff work. Yes. And the other thing I, I thought is interesting that you bring up Rio Bravo, because in reading about this movie, I saw that one of the reasons, um, or one of the things they were building off of is Wilder, uh, Western comedy, uh, pedigree, if you want to say that he oh, was in yeah, Blazing yeah, yeah. Saddles, and the year before that, he before this film, he was in The Frisco Kid, which is a western starring Harrison Ford and Gene Wilder, which I have not seen, have not heard anything about, but just I was researching and saw it, and I kind of want to see that. No, I'd watch it. I would. I would certainly watch it. Maybe. Uh, maybe we need to put that on our homework list. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if it's available to stream. I can. I can check real quick, but. Uh, 
if so, that is going to go maybe to the top of my queue, especially with me trying to watch Gene Wilder movies right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in memory of, I will point out, one of my absolute favorite actors. I know we didn't talk much about just him as an actor and his other roles, but one of my absolute favorites. Well, I mean, there aren't many comedians who have such relentless optimism that Gene Wilder seemed to have pretty much always on screen. He and, and he was more than if you especially if you go and you read about the influences he influences he had into the making of Willy Wonka. Like he came up with the scene um, or the idea in the scene for Wonka to um, come out with the cane and then do the, the somersault. Uh-huh. Like that was his idea to add some magic into the character. He had opinions on the costume with a a, re- yeah, a, yeah. a, a must read letter, in my opinion, um, about his opinions on what Wonka's costume should look like. He wrote Young Frankenstein. He he, he had a really he was a a really good. He was thoughtful. Yeah, that that that's a really good way to put it. And and to the top of my list of things to read is uh, his book Kiss Me Like a Stranger which came out a few years ago and I, I just never gotten around to it. But to, to me, Gene Wilder, he's a national treasure or was a national treasure. And yeah. it's just really sad to, it, it reminds, you know, it reminds you you're getting older and all those things. Yeah. Well, and you know, even with this not being like a seminal film, perhaps I'm still really glad that we, we did this because it, uh, it was still great. It was still a lot of fun. And that's something that, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of uh, comedies, I mean, comedies, it's difficult for them to age well. And this could have been one of those that just feels like, oh, it's a comedy of, of its era. And so if you were around at that time, you you think fondly on the jokes, but otherwise it doesn't really translate. Um, yeah, I, I was, I was going to bring up It's a Mad, 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 Mad World um, because that is one where I I do still laugh, but I can tell it aged. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this this doesn't seem to have much, if any, real like dated quality to. I mean, other than you know some of the the clothes and the hair and the cars, like um, it still totally works. Wilder has a timeless energy and a timeless comedic style to me. He's always going to be funny. He was funny in Blazing Saddles. He's funny in Young Frankenstein, and in a way that is still. Still funny. Maybe it won't be in a hundred years, but right now it's still really funny. Yeah, no, I, I, I really agree with you. I think I almost feel like no matter what we would have picked from my large collection of, of war crimes of uh, Gene Wilder films, it would have sort of been the same thing. Like he, he brings something great to it. And I, I'm, I am glad that we did something with prior um, because it was, it was sort of magical to see that friendship on screen. So Chris, I got a question for you. If I'm sitting at home and my batch of hooch that I have brewing in the toilet isn't quite ready yet, do you have a beer recommendation to pair with Stir Crazy? Uh, I do. And actually, this recommendation, I'm going to, like, I think it'll go perfectly with Stir Crazy, but I think it'll go well with anything, uh, any Gene Wilder movie that you happen to be watching, um, you know, in in memory of him or or otherwise. Uh, this pick is Amorous by Wicked Weed Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, the connection here is actually uh, a bit of a cheeky one. This is an American wild ale. So Gene uh. Wilder, a wild ale. Um, and what what wild ale generally uh, means is that there is actual wild yeast introduced into uh, the brewing process. So not your typical 
um, strain of beer yeast, but something, uh, something different, which can be disastrous or can produce very weird, odd, magical things. And in this case, it's a very weird, odd, magical, uh, beer. It's a, it's very tart. It's extraordinarily hoppy. Um, but it's a good sort of, it's a good sort of mix there. It's, I would say probably more on the side of like a, a tarty, soury, um, sort of beer. So I, honestly a really good summer beer. Um, but it also has, it's very complex and it has this sort of yeasty farmhouse funk to it, uh, that makes it, uh, just a really dynamic sort of beer. And, um, it's, uh, it's the type of beer that you sort of, you sip on and then it's just, it's so good. You want, you want just a little more and a little more and a little more. So, um, I think, uh, you know, savoring one of these with whatever Gene Wilder movie you pick, Young Frankenstein, Willy Wonka, um, anything with prior, whatever it is, I think it's going to be an enjoyable time. Star Crazy is available to buy or rent in all the places you typically buy or rent 36-year-old movies. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with a first-of-its-kind fantasy film course draft. When you wear your black sunglasses, nobody could change your mind. You are up for the snitch of the century. Nobody could change your mind. Labor Day has passed, fall is in the air, and that can only mean one thing. It's time for America's favorite imaginary sport. You know what that is, Chris? Uh, yeah, Quidditch. Uh, no, I think that's England's favorite imaginary sport. Oh, yeah, basketball. Uh, no, the basketball season starts in spring. Ah, Olympic handball. It's imaginary, but that's not our favorite. Of course, we're talking about fantasy football. And when the water cooler talk will turn to ADP, flex plays, and streaming defenses, many Midnight Warriors will feel left out on the sidelines. But worry not, because we are starting a new yearly tradition today at War Starts at Midnight, the yearly fantasy film course draft. Are we drafting fantasy films? Because I'm totally picking Pan's Labyrinth as my first round pick. Okay, everybody knows the consensus number one fantasy film is The Princess Bride, but no. This is where you and I will take turns picking films to fill out an imaginary 15-week class, and the winner will be decided by you, the listener. So now it's time for Fantasy Film Course Draft. First, let's go over the rules. We have a 15-week film course split into three sections. You have to pick five films to fill the following categories. Early film, which is 1939 or earlier. The Golden Age, 1940 to 1969. And modern film, 1970 to today. We will alternate who picks first, and you cannot pick a film after it's in one of our courses. When we finish, we'll post our syllabuses on the episode post at warstartsatmidnight.com, where you can go and pick which course you would enroll in. 
Before we start, do you have any questions, Chris? Um, so I've never done a fantasy draft, so I am a little curious. We just go back and forth. Is that, is that, is that simple? Um, first I find it interesting that you've never done, uh, any kind of fantasy sports. You played football. I did, but that was real. Uh, like, I think this is real too. I literally, paid money to play. So <laughs> fantasy uh, sports literally takes my least favorite part of sports, which is like the overanalyzing statistics and like caring about things that are not just one team or one section and just makes it all complicated. And like, I, I, it's not my thing. Uh, if I, I didn't think it was something I wanted to do and I tried it last year and like three weeks later, I knew who the Jaguars backup kicker was <laughs> and, and just your, your life changes. You, you see sports in a totally different way. I, I don't even like doing a, a March madness bracket. It's just, <sighs> well, if you want something that's kind of more more film oriented, there is a fantasy movie league, and so I, I took okay. the initiative and went and made a fantasy movie league for War War Starts at Midnight. Have you heard about this, Chris? I have heard about it because you've told me about it, but I have been very uh, just I, I haven't really touched it. I signed up, and that's as far as I've gotten because once again, um, you, you got to sell me on this. What's what's what is it? What's great about it? Okay, so Fantasy Movie League, you have an eight-screen theater, and you can pick any film to put on those eight screens. You have $1,000 that you have to use to spend on your your movies, and its its results are based off how those movies do at the box office this weekend. So, for instance, um, Suicide Squad might cost you $181 to put on a screen. And so the the ones that are projected to be high grossing films cost a lot of money and the ones that are not cost a little bit. So you got to kind of manage your screens and you might say, I'm showing Suicide Squad on five screens, but that means I have to show something way down at the bottom of the list, something that's been out for a while or gotcha. that's coming out that that might not do well. So it's uh, like it's like fake stock market stuff, but with movies. It is. A, it is a lot like that. So what? If you're is somebody this, who is watches this solely the, domestic uh, profits, or I, is this international? I believe it's domestic. Uh, you'd okay. have to we would have to double check that. But if you like looking at box office and you like to stay up to date on what's coming out, uh, this is is definitely a fun game. So I started uh, a league for the Midnight Warriors. You can go to wsampod.com/slash/movieleague or find the link in the show notes. Um, the password is Candy. As in uh, Colonel Candy. Is it Colonel? Yeah, Colonel Clive Wynn Candy. Yes. So Candy, I believe it's with a lowercase c. So go sign up and see if you can beat us in a fantasy movie league. <laughs> well, it shouldn't be too hard to beat me. We'll, yeah, so we'll I, see how I it should, goes, though. I should point out that um, the this season runs from August 29th to November 27th. Don't feel bad if you missed a couple of weeks because I am terrible at this. I am really, really bad. And I like don't even ever rank in the top, you know, ten thousand of like the public leagues. So you guys okay. really should be able to beat us. So this is this sort of plays. It plays in our own league, and then also compares us to others. Uh, you can you can like you pick your one box office, but you can use it in multiple leagues. Ah, okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it, it's think of it as like a lotto ticket sort of thing, except yeah. it's. Uh, and, and there are prizes if you if you win in a public league if you have the the best box office for a week. So, but I think it's time for us to get around to our draft. Okay. So, um, since, since, uh, you've been here longer, since you're older, Chris, I think you should get to pick first. 
And up first, we have five slots in early film. That's anything that was made or released before 1939, uh, including 1939. Okay. So I'm going to be, I know this is not how you are supposed to conduct a uh, fantasy draft, but I don't care. Um, I'm going to actually try to go sort of with week one, week two, how I would actually try to schedule the, um, schedule the course. I have a feeling some of this might come back to uh, bite me in the ass, but yeah, because I'm going to, I'm, I'm going more strategic. I am going to pick the things I think you're going to pick first. Yeah. I I figured, I figured that was going to happen, but that should make it more interesting, I guess. I think Um, so. And okay, I, I guess I have one other question. So mm-hmm. is this, am I going to pick first every time or is it going to be I pick first and then you pick and then you pick first and then I pick? Uh, so we, like if you were in a fantasy league, you would go like one to 10, like, uh, and the person who picks 10th would then pick 11th and it would go back to one. Uh-huh. But to keep it simple, what we're going to do is we're just going to alternate you, then me. Um, okay. And you start for early films. I'll do golden years and then you do a uh, modern film. Oh, that's very kind of you. Okay. We can, we can do that. So for my, for my first week pick, I'm just going to cheat coming straight out, out of the gate. Okay. And I have three films. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, but the, the first two are very short films. They're under 20 minutes. Um, the first is not, this is not how fantasy sports works, but I'll let you do it. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I don't care. This is, this is what I'm doing. Um, so see, I, I honestly, like I approach this probably more from an academic side than I should have, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. So first thing that I would show in my, in my course is the life of an American fireman by Edward S. Porter, uh, because this is like foundationally where cinema started. Um, it's the first place or it's cited a lot of times as the first place where there was intercutting. So cutting from one scene to another and then back. So very important foundation. Is is of, this the one where it's like a dog running and it cuts back and forth to the, the dog, like letting them know it, if the building's on fire or whatever? Yeah, basically. And, and actually, initially, it was completely linear. And then uh, Porter went back and recut it. And it discovered that it made it much more tense because you see basically like a woman in a burning building, you know, a building on fire and woman, you know, flailing or her hands outside. And then you go to the firemen, like finding out about the fire and rushing and sort of it, it builds up the intensity of, oh, gosh, are they going to make it there in time? Um, so I, I think it's very important. You know, if we're if we're talking film history um, that, that you start there and then I, I want to pair that with The Great Train Robbery. Also a Porter film. Um, also, you know, it's and, and these are both uh, 1903. So pretty early on in cinema. But Porter's playing with a lot of figuring out what the boundaries are. Um, and the boundaries are pushed much farther um, as as things go along. But this is this is a birthplace for that. And then can I guess what your third movie that goes with this is? Uh, you can, because I bet you're going to be wrong. But try is it. it a tr- is it a trip to the moon? No, it is not. So what? Um, I, I thought about it, but I wanted something a little more substantial. Um, so th- those are the two short films. And then I've got The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, which is okay. Oh, did I just blow you up? Uh, you didn't you didn't totally blow me up. But that was my first alternate. If you picked anything else. OK, OK. It's so fundamental. Cabin, it's got to it, be in there. Exactly. And it's, it's fundamental. This came out in 1920. So it's a bit later. But. Um, my, my thought process here is you've got Porter who's sort of laying the foundation and saying, these are, these are the ways to play 
with cinema. And, and then you've got Ween, um, the, the director of Calgary, and who, who's doing this whole German expressionism thing, which uh, for those who are not familiar with German expressionism very much, um, I mean, basically look at like early Tim Burton, and that was extremely influenced by German expressionism. Um, a lot of sort of saying, okay, well, what if we you know, don't just take the fundamentals of put this next to this, but what if we, you know, build these elaborate sets and create force perspective and, and all of these other things that aren't, you know, it's not verisimilitude. It's not reality. It's pushing the boundaries of what you can visually do with cinema and with narrative. So I, I think, yeah, it, like you said, it's fundamental. I don't want to go trash talking your course, but I'm just I'm just wondering how many how many people are going to drop out after your boring first week, Chris. I'm going with Buster Keaton's The General. <sighs> did I snipe your pick? You did. You did not exactly, but I was I was a little worried about this. Yeah, definitely going to open up with The General. I, I want my students to stay involved in the class, and I think mm-hmm. when they see what an early silent film can be, because The General is fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean. It, it really, truly holds up. And there are uh, some of my picks are sort of, you know, some uh, some medicine you got to take. And this is not one of them. This is this is you learn a lot about movies and see what people were doing in the silent era and how good silent movies could be. And you get, you have to have Buster Keaton. It's, it's hard to do a class without Buster Keaton. OK, well, I with are you ready to move on in the second week? Yeah, it's your turn. Okay, second week. I think I'm going to blow your general out of the water. Um, okay. Your your students are going to, you know, they're going to be they're going to be talking about how great your course is, but then they're going to hear about how wonderful my second week is, and they might they might you know flock on over. So I've got another double feature. This is once again. I mean, the thing is with silent <laughs> cinema, there were a lot of shorts, mm-hmm. and so I'm I have, yeah, I have a couple more, but. Um, you know, they're, they're supplementary pieces, but I've got one week, which is Buster Keaton's very first silent short, which is a marvel to this day. As far as uh, the big, the big set piece in this is he built this giant house that spun a hundred spun 360 degrees around. Um, it was amazing. Still like, I mean, to watch boggles my mind that, that he pulled it off watching today. Um, and then pairing that of course with Sherlock Jr., which I think is a better uh, example of Buster Keaton. Uh, Sherlock mind. Jr. was my alternate. It's really good. Um, what was the first one with the house? Uh, one week is what it's called. One week. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, it's on Hulu. I've recommended the Buster Keaton shorts before. Um, it's I think it's the first or second one in that um, in that streaming on Hulu. It's I mean absolutely worth worth checking out. It's great. Um, I've made several gifts of it. Um, that I, I will try to link to in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I think Sherlock Jr. Um, and this combined, you know, it's the, what, what I want to get at here is sort of the inventiveness of silent film and Buster Keaton. I think his physicality, um, is something that, uh, is perfect for silent filmmaking. And, uh, I, I think like the general is a great, great film, but it was my backup here because I think that um, it's a little more of a prestige picture. Um, it's fun. It's exciting. But I think you get like you're going to be more in awe watching Sherlock Jr. So my next pick uh, is another one to kind of keep people involved, but also te- teach them a lot about film, which is Birth of a Nation. So we know a remakes coming out this year. 
uh, some of the students <laughs> might feel. <laughs> uh, but but no, uh, it, it's D.W. Griffith. It's the I think maybe Intolerance was a, a bigger, grander movie. I'm not I'm uh-huh. not really sure about that. But Birth of a Nation is 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 a must see. Um, there are some. Um, troublesome parts of it like the some a lot you're you're uh, jake i feel like you're avoiding the word problematic here i don't want to say problematic but there are issues when your hero is the (laughs) ku klux klan riding in to save the day uh Uh but it's going to teach them a little bit about how how uh movies reflect the culture in which they're made i I can't defend that but it is a must-see for a student but also i mean to defend your pick um it's it's a movie that as far as film history is concerned, like it is pivotal in the story of film history in, I mean, it was influential not only in Hollywood, but internationally as well, as far as um, the way, I mean, he was, he was operating on a level beyond anyone else at that time, you know, with the, the way that he framed close-ups, the way he was just using uh, tinting a film, the way he was using masking of, of the, the frame, the, the scale it's, of the picture that, yeah. the, you think of silent movies as being like kind of a do with a camera and, you know, somebody being funny in front of it. But this shows that silent films can be a drama. It shows that silent films can be big pictures, can be action films. It it, it shows a lot. Yeah, that, so, that's a that's a really good pick. So moving on to week three, I've got I think this might be my last two for um, I've got La Jete, which is a film from 1962, which is so I'm double cheating here. But have you have you seen La Jete? No, I have not. Are are you familiar with it at all? You... No, uh, and my sigh was mostly because I'm thinking you're going to pick the artist or something next. You don't no. have a strong grasp of rules, do you, Chris? <laughs> no, I'm not going with the artist. I promise. Uh, all right. I hate. I I do not like the artist. One of my least favorite Best Picture winners of all time. Um, wow. But La Jete, the reason that I'm putting placing it here, one, it's a short film. Once again, I, I think it's only about 25 minutes. Two, uh, the entire film is only, is solely composed of still images and um, and sound effects and voiceover. So um, it it relies, even though it has sound, which uh, wasn't necessarily. I guess this, you know, we're we're going up through into the dawn of the sound era. Um, this you know kind of fits in, but the thing that really works about La Jete is the way that just putting still images next to each other builds a world. And that's, that's what I want to get out of this. Like, I, I feel like this is the type of movie that you put on and students are going to be like, Oh, what is this? And after the first five minutes, they're going to be totally engrossed by it. And it's only 25 minutes. So it's, it's quick. And I, I think they will be enamored with it. And then I want to pair that with the nook of the North, um, which is uh, famously the first documentary. Uh, the big thing about this would be that um, it early on, you know, introduces the a question that has plagued documentary um, ever since, which is what actually is real and what is truth and, and those sorts of things, because famously it was all staged. And so this, this is the type of thing that we're still talking about in documentary filmmaking to this day. Ethically, what does it mean? Um, that sort of stuff. So, um, and, and this is the type of thing that I think, you know, show La Jete, um, kids will be enamored with it. Show Nanook of the North, it'll feel like a very weird sort of split. Um, and then afterwards, bring up the, um, bring up the ethics of staging the, the scenes and, and all of that and create a dialogue about it. Uh, which I think will be very engaging. 
Okay, so uh, this is the time after this week when students might be dropping my class because I'm going to sit them down and make them watch Battleship Potemkin. <sighs> That's a good pick. That's a you really have, good pick. You have to watch Battleship Potemkin. Um, as a college freshman, when I uh, was made to watch the film, I was like, what is this and what's going on? But I really appreciate having to have watched it. It's the thing that a film class should do, which is take you out of your comfort zone and teach mm-hmm. you something really fundamentally important. And Battleship Potemkin's use of montage is, you know, Eisenstein is the the master of montage. And Certainly it, the godfather of it, yeah. Yeah, so th- this is a must-see, and uh, if, if you haven't seen it, you know, come up with something you want to reward yourself with, and then watch <laughs> it, and then reward yourself with it. Jake, let me ask you this. Have you seen uh, Battleship Potemkin in the past 10 years? Um, I almost said yes, Chris. I saw it when we started college, but that is more than ten years ago. So no, exactly. No, okay. I have not. Um, I would suggest going back and watching it. It is so back when we had uh, Turner Classic Movies, it would be on periodically. Like I'd say every six months or so, I would I would catch it on, and it just enraptured me. Like it's one of those things that it felt like eating your vegetables watching it in a film history mm-hmm. course initially. But now having a broader like understanding of film history, it's so good. And it's so like it's it's a difficult thing to put place into curriculum because I think you have to understand the scope of what it's up against historically to really understand how important it is. Um, but, yeah, it's I I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but I would recommend checking. And if it is, I, I uh, bet it is on. I bet it's on Hulu. If it's anywhere. That, I mean, it should be. It Anyway, check it out. Look for it. If you can find it, watch it again. I think you'll be surprised. All right. Your turn. Okay. Moving on to week four. Um, we're going to get real heavy in week four. Um, so I, I've got I, this week, unless you like pull the rug out from under me, um, I've got sort of a one-two punch with four and five where we're, we're deep in the silent film era. Um you know, there's something with, uh, I think silent film is capable of doing things that talkies can't do. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to focus on that. I wanted to focus on some silent films that I feel like if you added dialogue, if you added music, if you added whatever to them, um, they would not be as good. And so my first, uh, pick here with week four is the passion of Joan of Arc from 1928 by Carl Theodore Dreyer. I, I knew what you were talking about before you said it, and I have not seen it yet. And it is like a must watch. Dude, on it's Hulu. It's I, on Hulu. It's like you need to be in the right like headspace because there is literally no audio at all with this film. Um, this is not this even is f- like the nor- normally silent films are shown with like a score. No, there and there were at the time there were movie houses that would have accompanying score, but it was intended to be completely silent. Wow. And it's so much more powerful because of it. And there's, I won't get into it now, but there's a crazy history of this movie being lost forever and then being found in a monastery and, um, and restored. Yeah, I, I read Zeroville. That was a documentary book, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Some of, some of that is sort of true in Zeroville. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's fantastic and it's powerful. And it's, I, I feel like by this time, if, if, you know, it's probably a little too late to drop. So I've got them, I've got them hooked in and 
I just, I want to have the discussion afterwards about like, what the hell was that? And what did that make you feel? Um, some of the most amazing acting on screen ever. That is a really good pick, but I'm steering my class in a different way. We're starting to head towards, uh, sound movies and, Uh It was really hard to pick a Chaplin movie because I really like the kid and I really like modern times, but I had to go with city lights. Uh, I knew it. I knew that was a Chaplin you were going to pick. I, yeah, so I, I, I knew you knew. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was actually curious if we were going to split and I was going to go straight Keaton and you were going to go straight, straight Chaplin, but you actually, you picked up on both of them. I'm, I, I'll be honest. I'm dropping Keaton completely because I just don't have room for him. Yeah, it's I, I don't know. I know that mine might be a little more my cl- that class so far might be a little more mainstream, but I think I mean I'm approaching this as a film 101 and this this one's an easier one to watch, but I I feel like it is important that the students see Chaplin. Uh, well, City Lights is sort of an interesting bridge too because it sort of it sets up the rom the rom-com in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's I love I love it. I love it. Uh, I, I have a very like nostalgic uh, heart or whatever you want to call it or a romantic at heart or whatever. And that, uh-huh, uh-huh. that is the movie that that speaks to me. No, that's that's a really good pick. That's not where I thought you were going with that setup, but we'll see if we, you get into it in in week five. So okay. moving on to my week five, I've got a movie that I knew you weren't going to pick, but I would like to try to convince you to watch it. Um, it is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. And this film actually came out a year before The Passion of Joan of Arc, 1927, um, directed by F.W. Murnau, who um, almost all, all or sorry, also famously did like Nosferatu and um, and several other great silent films. But this I think this movie is the epitome of the silent film. I think this is if you tried to translate this into a talkie, it would totally destroy it because it's. It's sort of weird. It's sort of wacky. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of all over the place, but it, the, it's, it's almost the, um, it's entrancing. And, uh, Murnau was actually a lot like, I know Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin actually had a battle to see who could include the fewest inner titles. Um, in in a feature length film. Yeah. And I, I can't remember off the top of my head who won or what the number was or or whatever, but, and I don't know how it stacks up to sunrise, but sunrise is definitely up there in that ranking. Murnau famously hated intertitles. And so he just trusted the audience to go along and figure out what was going on. And because of that, there's a lot of, you know, this fundamental, um, montage, clashing of images, clashing of scenes, trusting the audience to just follow that I think is very important in the story of how cinema became, um, sprouted off into, into all of the avenues that it, that it has since in, you know, the ability for something like the matrix or a Paul Greengrass movie to make sense to us is it's all about trusting the audience to go along with these crazy images that you you put up against each other. And so um, that's sort of what Sunrise is. It's it's great. It's it's a melodrama, but and and that's the thing is it's like the acting is would be way over the top for a for a talkie, but it works perfectly well with uh with the silent genre and uh it's fantastic. I'm I'm definitely interested. And my last pick was almost lonesome, which sounds like it might match up with Sunrise really well. Uh, have you seen Lonesome? Lonesome? No. What is that? 
uh, it's it's a film right at the end of the silent era about uh, two people in New York who uh, are both extremely lonely and they meet up and they go to Coney Island together and there's a fiery um, roller coaster wreck. It's really good, but that is not my pick. Okay, that uh, actually sounds strangely similar to yeah. That to and when you were but talking sorry, go, about it, that's what I that's what it, I thought about. But so my since we're going to 1939 in this, we got to transition into into talking. Talking pictures, I, I obviously the pick is stagecoach, but I'm not doing that. I'm doing Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Oh damn, that's a good pick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, why I, why Mr. Smith over stagecoach? How how is it that? I mean, are you are you leaving stagecoach out there for me to just poach it? What's going uh, on? No, because you've already made five picks in this, and stage oh, stagecoach is from 1939. You're right. Yeah, neither of us pick stagecoach, which is almost a crime, but. I'm picking Mr. Smith goes to Washington because I'm going to have some some more uh, Ford coming later, and I need a Capra film. Capra okay. is one of my okay. favorites. That's a good I like. I I had to make a few of those sacrifices as well. Yeah, so I'm I'm going Mr. Smith. It's it's fantastic, and it stands up, and it, it shows a, a, a film with heart, and which is one of the things I, I I love, and I think it's an important film. Okay, so before we transition into week six and. Uh, move over to where you're you're starting. I would just like to point out that I actually I screwed up. I'm going to stay with it, but I screwed up in my week three. Um, I actually intended to go with Man with a Movie Camera, the crazy um, mm-hmm. uh, Russian documentary. I mean, they call it a documentary, but it's like just insane editing and visuals and and whatnot. But uh, Nanook of the North, I'm going to stick with uh, because I already said it, and because uh, it's still it brings up a lot of very interesting questions. Uh, deep regret and missed picks are a, a, a fundamental cornerstone of fantasy football drafts. So I feel like it should be uh, it should be in ours as well. So we're gonna <laughs> yeah. move on to gold. We're gonna move on to golden era now, which is 1940 to 1969. And to kind of keep up the pace, let's try to keep it to like one or two sentences to to explain the picks. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this time I get to go first, and I'm gonna go ahead and just start off. I'm showing Citizen Kane, Chris. Okay, it's. It's the surface great film that everybody's heard of, and I know it's the the one that movie hipsters love to hate sometimes. But a true film, a true film buff needs to see Citizen Kane and needs to understand why it's great. The first time I watched it, I thought it was good. The second and third and tenth time I watched it, I know that it is great. Okay, I'm going to for my week six. I'm going to go with something. I actually so I didn't choose Citizen Kane strictly because I. Um, in trying to pick these, I, I made some decisions where it was basically like, oh, well, Wizard of Oz would be great in, you know, a lot of ways, but everyone's seen Wizard of Oz. Citizen Kane, I think Citizen Kane is the type of movie that if you care about film, you will eventually see Citizen Kane. Um, you will, by some means, um, seek it out and watch it. Um, but this is a film that I think is very applicable to what you've just said as far as like the type of thing that the first time you watch it. It might feel a little arduous, but the second and third and fourth and fifth time, you'll realize how important it is to um, to filmmaking and and how it like it's I don't know it's it's a film before its time I think and it's a film that I'm not going to say too much about because I've already said plenty about it. It's Life and Death of Colonel Blimp by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. I, I left it off. That was just a gift to you. I knew you were going to pick it. It's thanks. We all know I, what I had. Yeah, I had a Powell Pressburger backup with the red shoes if it uh, if I didn't get it, but. Um, yeah, it's it's a great film. Uh, if you haven't seen, it, I don't know why you're why you're still listening to this. Go go watch Live and Death the Colonel Blimp. It's yeah, great. just turn it off right now and go and watch it. 
Uh, I have a similar opinion about Rashomon, which is my next pick. Oh, um, man. I, I know. Kur- Kurosawa's my favorite. Chris knows this. And, mm-hmm. and I'm picking Rashomon. Okay. If you haven't seen it, again, turn it off and go and watch. <laughs> yeah, Rashomon. I mean, it's it's uh, pivotal storytelling and it's international cinema, which uh, I feel we haven't we haven't gotten too deep into yet. But really, I'm, I mean, on I my like list, I also- actually noted the foreign films that I wanted to cover specifically, and that is the one I picked over Seven Samurai or Throne of Blood or any of the twenty other Kurosawa films. I think it fit in this course, but I think Rashomon's the one. Nice. Okay, so coming up on week seven for me, I've got something that I think might poach from you, and that's uh, Singing in the Rain. Directed by Stanley Donnell and uh, Gene Kelly. I almost and, picked it as my last pick because I knew it was coming for one of us. <laughs> um, and this is a this is a movie that I almost left off, but I just couldn't because it's just so good. It's I think um, I struggled a bit with uh, creating this list. With am I going to Hollywood? I don't know, but like this is a movie that needs to be on here. It's a great Hollywood genre film, um, and it's just. Uh, it's just delightful and you need to see it. And it's, I think it's the type of movie that people initially, when you put it on and you say, Hey, we're going to watch an, an old movie from 1952. That's a musical. Initially they're going to be, like, Oh God, by the end, they're going to well, love it. Well, screw you for taking my pick. Uh, I'm picking the man who shot Liberty Valance. Nice. Everybody else shows the searchers. I'm showing the man who shot Liberty Valance and I'm going to throw this out there, uh, before I think too much about it. I think it's a better picture than the searchers. Wow. Wow, that's those are strong words that I'm not willing to uh, debate at this point. But that might be that could be a civil war at some point. I I may wake up and change my mind about this because I love The Searchers, but I think The Man Who Shot Liberty Fallon is in my top three films of all time. Man, that's that's a good that's a good pick, and those are strong words. Okay, Uh, moving on to my week eight. I struggled with what to put in the slot because we're kind of, we're into, um, sort of the golden era. Um, I, I had a few things that I was kidding around, but I'm going to, I'm going to go a little weird, a little like off the beaten path since I went singing in the rain. I'm going to go the earrings of Madame de, uh, by Max Ophels. <sighs> yeah. Um, and I, it's, this is going to hopefully tie into something that I have later, um, in my modern era. And, uh, it's a it's a beautiful film. It's a it also meets my requirement of getting a little more international flavor in. Uh, Max Ophuls is a director who I have not seen nearly all of his all of his work, but all of it that I've seen is incredible, and I think it's a perfect entry point to allow students to then want to seek out more. Yeah, and I I, I watched it based on your recommendation, and I thought it was fantastic. Oh, great! I didn't even realize I'd recommended it to you. Fantastic. Yeah. Um. So my next pick. I, I struggled with this one. I didn't know what direction to go. I went with On the Waterfront. Good. Nice. I've never, I've, I've never seen it taught in any of the classes that I, I've been enrolled in, but On the Waterfront is it's, it's fantastic. It's really, really great. So the the uh, Elia Kazan, as I think, uh, I think how you pronounce his name, yeah. the direction, his direction's fantastic, and Marlon Brando gives an amazing performance. It's a must-see and and I wanted to go something different. There, there's a bunch of movies that I'm not going to name, but that I that could serve a similar role as this. But that's that's my pick. Okay, my my next pick. I I toyed around with the idea of Rashomon here. Um, you made it very obvious that I cannot uh, <laughs> cannot go with it. But ultimately, I landed in a different direction anyway. 
and that's Father Panchali, which is uh, the 1955 film from Satyajit Rai. Um, what to say about this movie? It's it's a movie that I feel like a lot of people don't see anymore. Like I I feel like I read about it a lot when I was in film film school, but uh, never ended up seeing never ended up seeing anything from Rai. Um, maybe it was because Wes Anderson, the Darjeeling limited had just come out. And so people were, um, at that time and, you know, people were, were talking about his stuff more, but, um, an incredible portrait of pathos, a, another great glimpse into international cinema. Once again, students, they can't leave at this point. Um, so, uh, they might be reluctant, but I think they're going to love it by the end. Um, and it also has something that I'm trying to do with this list is get the hooks in the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, this has, two films that follow it in the Apu trilogy. And so if, you know, you get the hooks in with Father Panchali, then maybe they'll seek out the other two. That's my thinking here. That's that's pretty good. I like that. Um, my next pick, which is the last one for this, uh, for the golden era, I'm going with Rear Window. None of us nice, have had a Hitchcock nice. film yet. And no, no film better shows uh, the uh, Laura Mulvey's male gaze, mm-hmm. um, uh, anything, any, it, it it is such a symbolic film and there's so much going on under the hood that it is really easy to teach. And, uh, right. I, I, I think it's a must see medicine, medical qualities, great acting. I mean, it's, it's solid Hitchcock through and through. And that's a good, you, at some point you have to assign an essay and, and throw the kids a bone. I mean, they got to have something <laughs> to write about. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Okay. So to wrap up my, um, what, what are we calling this? The golden era? No, the, yeah, the golden era. This is golden era. Um, I I struggled a little bit with where I wanted to go. I thought about going Ivan's Childhood, the Andre Tarkovsky film. <sighs> yeah. Um, because it's, just, it's so good. I won't go into it here, but it's so good. I felt that I may be, things may be a little heavy coming off of uh, Earrings Madame de and Father Panchali. So I'm going to go Army of Shadows, directed by Jean-Pierre Melville in 1969. So right up at that edge. And uh, this is a movie... That's just it's perfectly displays Melville's cool, calculated, unflinching style. Um, it's it's about the French resistance in World War Two. Um, it was banned in America until like the early 2000s. Um, it's beautiful. It's well acted. Um, it's it's another one of those that I think you put on be like, Oh gosh, another, another movie with subtitles. And then they're going to be engrossed by it and they're going to love it. It's, it's a tense, uh, suspense action thriller, sort of a film. Um, Chris, none of us, none of us picked wages of fear. None of us picked Bonnie and Clyde. None of us picked 2001, a space odyssey. None of us picked Dr. Strange, strange love. Strange love was strange. Love was a, uh, honorable mention. Like it was, it was a backup. Um, when I, when I went with earrings, met him to, Rio Bravo was a strong backup that I didn't go with either. There's yeah. there's great great movies left on the shelf. This is this is a, this was the hardest one for me. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. All right, so you're up next for the first pick in the modern era, and we're saying that is anything from 1970 till today. Okay, 1970 till today. So um, here I come with a cheat from 1959. I've got the 400 <laughs> blows from Francois Truffaut. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know and, something like that was coming? And in my notes, I have, uh, it's a total cheat, but I, I think the reason why I want to place this film here is because it is a huge influence in, um, the modern era of filmmaking, you know, and I could have gone with something else. I could have gone with breathless or some other French new wave. But, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that I'm, I'm a little more inclined to, to watch the 400 blows than, um, some other French new wave films. And, 
Um, I, I think it's wonderful and it's, it's another movie that like a life, life and death of Colonel Blimp is maybe decades ahead of its time in a lot of ways, thematically and visually and, and those sorts of things. And, um, also I think we'll tie into some of my, um, other picks coming up later. I'm surprised so, you didn't pick is. day for night, which is also true. actually day, day the, for night is literally my backup underneath. Um, yeah, here's the thing about I, day for night though. I think for history, it's a little heavy to like the content that you would really want to get into. Um, with it being the meta cinematic aspects and all of that, that's something that would be more interesting to delve into a like 201 sort of course after you have your history fundamentals and talk about if, if I didn't get rear window, I was going to go day for night. I mean, they cover similar hmm. things in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I but, think, I think day for nights, you know, it's a lot more playful. It's a lot more direct. Um, I, I think you made the right choice with, with rear window, nothing not to knock day for night at all, but, uh, yeah, you got to go rear window. I, I have zero Hitchcock on here and I regret that a bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm not making this next pick to steal from you, but I'm going to steal from you and pick taxi driver. I knew you were going to pick taxi driver and I didn't even consider it. How really? I, I knew you did. And I gave you Colonel blimp and I just assumed I would take taxi driver. Okay. Um, well, I sort of, I guess I sort of gave you to, but like I knew you were going to want it. And, and I knew that like I could fill. there's plenty of film. I mean, we're five per, per era and, and these are broad eras. Like, yeah, you can, you can have it. I, I tell me, tell me what you got. Why, why taxi driver? Uh, we, we've talked about this a bunch, but, um, taxi driver is a movie well, it's fantastic on its own, but also from film theory, it addresses so many things. We we called out, we gave it a, a shout out earlier when we were talking about um, just the 70s, 80s New York wasteland mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and Travis Bickle existing in that universe. You can apply it to any aspect of life. In college, I used to joke around and say, yeah, you know, name, name something, name any anything you want me to write an essay on. And I, I can make Taxi Driver about that. I wrote I wrote no fewer than five essays on Taxi Driver, one of them in a class called Human Sexuality. <laughs> so Taxi Driver applies to everything. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really good pick, and, and, and I think it embodies it embodies seventy seventy cinema in a lot of ways. The um, the cynicism, the darkness, all of that. Fantastic pick. Seriously, email hello at war starts at midnight, and I will write you a one paragraph essay on the <laughs> on the theme of your choice, citing Taxi Driver. This is great. I hope that happens. I really hope that happens. Okay. All right, your turn, Chris. Okay, so for week twelve, I I have really been on the fence about this one up until this very moment considered going with, um, the conversation directed by Francis Ford Coppola, um, which I would say is my favorite movie of his from the year 1974. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but I, I figured people are going to see and have seen uh, the Godfather. They probably, unless, uh, pointed in the direction, wouldn't see the conversation. So, uh, but that's not where I went. I went with something even more difficult and uh, maybe inaccessible. And that's A Woman Under the Influence, uh, directed by John Cassavetes, um, has a lot of stylistic um, sort of connection to the 400 blows with, you know, the verite style, the acting style, um, all of that. I think this is a movie that is going to be a, it's going to be a difficult evening. Um, there's going to be that dinner scene that seems like it goes on forever. Um, but I think it's also going to sit in the psyche of the students for a long time. I heard you, I heard you audibly sort of groan. Um, 
No, because I remember watching the dinner scene in a film class one time and yeah. being like, what is going on? <laughs> I, I didn't have any Cassavetes even on my, my list of potentials. And I actually regret that now that you brought it up. Um, it's, I like, mean, he, he's tough to like fit in and make, I mean, and, and here's the thing, like we watch when we watch it in, I think it was a 70s cinema class. I had already seen a woman under the influence before. And I was just sitting there thinking like, oh my God. Like, and I think the professor called an audible with it. And I was just like, oh my God, you're showing this. What, what are you doing to these kids? But I kind of now having come out of it on the other end, I appreciate that he did it because the conversation was interesting. It was different than anything we had had before. And um, that, that's the thing. I think it, it will spark a lot of opinions, whether they're good or bad. So my, my next pick um, is much more mainstream and easier to watch, but hard to watch in its own way. Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Oh, nice. I, I didn't have a Kubrick film on here. Mm-hmm. And I almost picked Strange Love. I almost picked 2001. I mean, I almost picked The Shining. I, I, I thought about a lot of them. And I'm going Full Metal Jacket. I... I've said that the 45-minute first section of Full Metal Jacket would be the greatest short film ever made, if you want to consider that a short film, where they're yep. in boot camp. that That's just amazing. But then you juxtapose it with what is also a great war film about Vietnam, and those two sitting next to each other is fantastic. They show different perspectives on the same event. Not on the same event, but on war. Just two different points of view on war, juxtaposing them together. They show Kubrick style really well. That's my pick. Also, I think it's the best best movie from the eighties, but that is also considering Raging Bull as a seventies film. <laughs> that's a good cheat. I, I know a, I break rules the, too, Chris. That, that's a cheat. I that's a cheat. I back as well. Um, yeah. No, I regret. I don't have any Kubrick on here. Doctor Strange Love was a backup, um, but I didn't didn't pick it. Um, but again, I think people are going to seek out Kubrick in some manner. Like he has a pretty small body of work, so it's also. Um, while they are pretty weighty films, a lot of times, like I, I, I trust that the students will eventually uh, get there. So for my next pick, I'm going like I'm rewarding. So I force fed like the just tubers to these students with a woman under the influence. So mm-hmm. I'm giving I'm rewarding them with a double scoop of ice cream with Raiders of the Lost Ark, 1981 <sighs> film directed by Steven Spielberg. And here's the thing: I I felt like needed to cover that turning point in some way. Um, but once again, kids have definitely seen star Wars or should have seen star Wars. Kids have probably seen jaws. Um, this comes after that, but it's also sort of the product of that blockbuster turning point. Um, and it's also, I, I think historically is even more interesting and dynamic because it's something that couldn't have happened had those films not existed. So it's, uh, it's it, like I said, the product of that. Um, and, and so that's, uh, that's why we, and you know, it's a, it's a fun movie. There's no way they're not going to have fun this class. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think they probably would have seen it already, but no, they probably, they probably said, will, but, but this is putting it in a new context. I, I made a bunch of mainstream picks and you need to reward your students. You have put them through <laughs> hell at this point in the semester. My, so, my alt, my alt there was the thing. I have not seen that. What? That's a, that. That's a That's war crime. That's a war crime for crime? the future. Yeah, definitely. Okay. 100%. John Carpenter's so, the thing. So, the for the next one, I'm up in I'm up into the 90s in my class, and I okay. needed to pick a 90s movie and I wanted to cover the Coen brothers. So, okay. I am I am not going to go Fargo, which is what I had written as my main pick, cuz the more I'm thinking about it, the more I want to show the students Barton Fink. Nice. 
that's you know i i got it i got a bit of a barden fink feeling watching gene wilder in uh, stir crazy actually did you like he's he's the yin to barden fink's yang <laughs> i like that um barton fink is something i think even a lot of coen brothers fans maybe not have uh maybe haven't seeked out to see it it's yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a little harder than some of their films but it's really really good no it's daunting i didn't i mean and i, I guess i'm this way with a lot of coen brothers stuff but i didn't totally get it the first time um you know it it had that air of like oh this is a palm d'or winner and i get why because oh mm-hmm. but uh it's good that's a good pick and and I think you need to you need to cover film history, but you also need to cover some film theory and criticism. And I think this would be from the modern era something that would be really good to yeah. get students' opinions on. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're giving uh, you're giving your students a little run for their money. I'm I'm trying to you know reward them for eating their vegetables at this point. So I'm going to give them boobs with uh, Boogie Nights. 1997. Ah. Paul Thomas Anderson. It's his second film, but really. Um, you know, it sort of feels like his first. He's only 27 when when he directed this film, um, and it has a few sort of tie-ins. It, uh, the this is the direct tie-in with Max Ophuls. Um, he, I'll see if I can find it. There's there's like a little video essay thing where he describes the opening scene of Earrings Medemda and how he just loves the moving camera. And I had always thought, you know. Um, Goodfellas and Altman and, and, you know, those films were what, uh, what Paul Thomas Anderson was pulling from with his, you know, extended long shots. Uh, but him describing Ophel's, uh, it, ma- it makes perfect sense there as well. Um, and, and this is a movie that it's sort of half enjoyable and half like, I mean, it's, it's a little long. And it gets into a crazy coke fueled rage that feels like a crazy coke fueled rage by the end. Um, but I think it's also sort of a a turning of a new leaf in like where cinema has gone over the past twenty years. Um, and and also I think uh, maybe a movie that students these days haven't seen, like they're familiar with Paul Thomas Anderson. Maybe they've seen The Master. Maybe they've seen uh, There Will Be Blood. But to see where he came from here. Um, I think will be really rewarding. It's sort of like the reason I wanted to do Ivan's childhood from Tarkovsky. Um, but, but didn't like, I, I wanted to go with that film because Tarkovsky becomes like a bright blazing fire, but that amazing spark in the beginning, um, which is what Boogie Nights is here for Paul Thomas Anderson is still fantastic. So my next pick, I think is going to be an easy one for them to watch. And how, how old are, uh, how old would kids in college be right now? They would probably be born I don't know, 18, 19. So, so probably born in around 1998. This may have been a little before their time, uh, but they really need to see Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I've, mm. I've never seen this one taught in a class either, but I think there is a lot to talk about in it. And I, I think to show the effects and the acting and the, I, I think even though it is highly rated in a lot of lists, I still feel like it's underrated and underappreciated. Yeah. That's that's a good pick, and I agree. Like, not something that I would expect for film history, but uh, an interesting. It's inventive. It's um, you know, sort of. It also you could play a little bit with Michel Gondry being a commercial and music video director coming in to do feature films and how that plays into it. That that's a really good pick. And I I, w- I would want to show how you can use new technology to tell stories in new ways. And, yeah, and that's something I think. Um, and some of his other films have done that and Spike Jones films have done that. But. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that's interesting about Gondry though, is like he's half using technology, half 
just doing in camera tricks. Like anytime you see two Jim Carrey's in that movie, he's actually running around behind the camera and changing costume or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, like when Elijah Wood's face disappears, obviously that's digitally removed, but whenever his face didn't really disappear. (laughs) Um, but, uh, whenever he could pull it off in camera, he did, which is kind of amazing. That's awesome. All right, this is your last pick, Chris. My my last pick. And now that you've said these kids are probably born like 98 or so, I realize this is the first movie that has been around since they were alive, um, which is maybe a little ridiculous, but it's history. So um, there's a lot of film history before before they were around, certainly. I mean, film been around for 100 years by that point. Um, but my, my closing pick, it's going to be, I think it's maybe going to divide the class a bit, but it's No Country for Old Men. The, this is the Coen Brothers movie that I had to get on the list. I think it's a perfect sort of um, poetic close as well to the course. Um, and I mean, part of that being that it's it's witty, it's masterful storytelling. It's also sort of the perfect compelling use of the limits of um, things, the elements of, of film, which is light and sound. Um, there are moments where it's as dark as it can possibly be. And you still register what the image is. There are moments where it's as quiet as it can possibly. And it's, it's definitely quiet. And I think they use those things to their full effect. So this is kind of bringing it all full circle back to, um, the, the broader thing that I was trying to craft, which is talking about images and sound and how that is the foundation of cinema. So the, I think that's a fantastic pick. Uh, what I went for my last film, I wanted to show that film history is still being made. There are still things, because uh, you know, a lot of time in class, you watch a lot of old things and mm-hmm. you forget that new movies can be important and new movies can can be um, can be new touchstones of cinema. So mm-hmm. I went with Mad Max: Fury Road. Nice, perfect, there, perfect. It, it, that's it is. That, go ahead. That, that's perfect. That's that is the honestly that is a movie that. I feel like if a student watches and says, I didn't get it, you should fail them. They fail the entire <laughs> semester because it's the entire it, movie is visual literacy. Yeah. It, I think it, it brings it full circle back to silent films at the beginning. Yeah. And, and you can show this is what you can do with just a camera, yeah. uh, a camera and, and $150 million and a bunch of really cool cars, but with a camera. <laughs> and it, it tells a simple story. But a big story and, and what feels like an important story, it, it's, it's, it was a shame that it did not win Best Picture last year, but it did win Closing of My Course. <laughs> well, and I think it won the most uh, Oscars overall because it, it swept technical. So right. it had that going for it. Okay. Do you want to get into a few? Do you have any honorable mentions for things that you weren't able to fit in but and, and sort of regret having to, yeah, to leave behind? I, I almost put Grindhouse in there. Really? I, I, I really, because that, I, I would teach Grindhouse. I would love to teach Grindhouse. Did you hate no, Grindhouse? I hate half of Grindhouse for sure. What half? Which half do you think? Uh, Death Proof. No, Planet Terror. Planet Terror is awful. I love Death Proof. Death Proof really? is like, yeah, Death Proof is like edge of your seat, like, just it starts slow, but the last like 40 minutes, 50 minutes of that movie is incredible. I, I don't like I, Planet I, Terror. I don't like Robert Rodriguez, though. We can get in this later. Yeah, I, I, I like both of those. Uh, and I think they're both really fun, but I, I would use them to kind of turn the class back in on itself and say, what other things is this 
pulling from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Genre still happening. You know, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, I, I get that. That's, that's a good, I, I'm just going to like ramble through some. I have, a, I have a little list here. Rear window, okay. really regret not being able to get it in. Um, glad you did. Uh, Tokyo Story, the Ozu film, mm-hmm. um, would have been would have been great. Probably better for like a two hundred one or a later course anyway. Uh, the Searchers, you already mentioned, great mm-hmm. film. Sunset Boulevard, really upset that I didn't get any. Um, uh, why uh, 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 Billy Wilder in? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I had yeah. Um, and I even had I had the apartment as a backup, which would have been I think that was maybe Earrings Madame de. Or it would, it, yeah. it would have been a much more enjoyable film um, for the the week, but decided to go a little more challenging. Saboteur was the Hitchcock I considered, mm-hmm. um, which is unconventional, but that's once again trying to go a little um, more. Um, and with Rear Window, I figured you would go with Rear Window, I guess I should say. Uh, but Saboteur, I think it fits into this sort of very specific era where there were films being made in the middle of World War two that were commenting on world war two or that were about patriotism, patriotism and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Like They've Colonel got, Blimp. Like Colonel Blimp, but also like I'm thinking more like foreign correspondent or, uh, what is it? What's the Fritz Lang movie? Um, I forget the title off the top of my cloak head. and dagger. Uh, Mis- ministry of fear. I think is what it was called. Um, I, I, I think he also made cloak and dagger during the war with, um, uh, Gary Cooper. Totally, totally and, possible. I mean, uh, he was he was trying to prove at that point, like, I am a patriot. I am not a Nazi. So I think he had more than one. Um, but, you know, there were there were a bunch of these movies that were all about sort of uh, the mania of like anyone could be subversive, um, that sort of thing. Saboteur just happens to be my favorite. Uh, Raging Bull, you already mentioned Perfect Blue. I thought about including animation, but I feel like animation is almost its own sort of thing. You I know, to, I, I couldn't. You can't, you can't dip a toe. Uh, Double Indemnity, how, how did we... How do we not, both I mean, not, not even, include double indemnity? I know. And I don't even really consider that Billy Wilder. That's just like solid noir, like a, a great post-war moment. Uh, Chinatown, her um, seventh seal and wild strawberries. Can't believe neither of us had anything by Bergman. And then finally, only because I didn't want to waste seven weeks on it. Not waste. Waste is the wrong word. But OJ Simpson made in America. Um, <laughs> would be, it would be a, an amazing capper to, um, to the semester, but it's seven and a half hours long. And so there's just no way. So, so from, from my, uh, modern ones, just a few, I want to rattle off real quick. I didn't include Annie Hall and we didn't have any mm. Woody Allen, mm-hmm. but I think Annie mm-hmm. Hall's fantastic. Um, district nine is another one I consider for my newest one. I really like district nine. Interesting. I, I think it was a really good film. Um, and memento, we didn't have any Nolan. But I think Memento would be interesting to cover as well. And, and Memento, Memento or Following would be the Nolan to pick because I think everyone's seen the Batman movies. Um, maybe right. Prestige. Um, Prestige maybe is one that's Prestige. maybe flown under the, the radar a little bit. But um, I feel like Nolan's also like everyone knows Nolan. So uh, he's, Train Spotting? We didn't train spotting would be good. That's not train spotting would be would be but. interesting. That's Boyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that that would be an interesting choice for like the last couple weeks. Yeah. And, and uh, th- there's so many movies, and I tried to keep this as a as a film 101. Just like lay the yeah. base; these are the things you have to see to even be able to walk in in the door. Yeah, and I, yours obviously made more assumptions about you know they would have seen some of these movies. Already. Yeah, mine's mine's more a punishing um, film 101 course. But here's the thing: like we are opening this up to voting 
of the Midnight Warriors. So they can actually decide who made the better course. And, and, and that's it. Lineups, lineups are set, courses are scheduled, and it's time for enrollment. Go to the episode post on warstartsatmidnight.com to enroll and vote for the course you would sign up for. And I think I'm going to make a letterboxed uh, list of this as well, just so that uh, people can go and, and look at it, comment on it if you want. Um, that'll be in the show notes also. So um, we want to hear – We well, first of all, we want you to vote. But we also want to hear like if you want to play along with this, um, send us your – uh, 15 week course schedule, uh, at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. We'll read them. Uh, we may read them on the air if we have the time in the future. Yeah. And, and really I will write you a taxi driver essay. (laughs) Send me a prompt. I can write it about anything. It does not matter. (laughs) Okay. Well, stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. Jake, it is recommendation time once again, and we've had a whole lot of recommendations. You could say with uh, our, you know, fantasy draft. Our this is a very successful, very good fantasy draft. I'm excited to see what happens next year when you know we we try to stir things up a little bit. Yeah, hey, next next year we might draft for a different class. We might draft for 102. That's that's not a bad idea, actually. That would that would totally change things up. Okay, so. Uh, for recommendations, what do you what do you have? Is this something that you had to leave out? Is this uh, what do you got for us today? Uh, yes. Yeah, so so uh, in honor of Gene Wilder, who was famously in Blazing Saddles, I wanted to go with the 1970s picture um, Blazing Stewardesses. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm totally joking. That is a real movie, though. Is this like a Corman movie? No, it is an Al, uh, from the famous Al Adamson. It, it seems like it's a movie that's trying to cash in on. Um, blazing saddles because the the poster says out blazing blazing saddles this year's mad mad world of sheer lunacy and complete insanity ah uh, okay i see what's going on here yeah, yeah it's uh it's probably a, a strong avoid but if you watch it definitely let us know <laughs> a, a date a date movie for travis pickle uh yeah it's a date movie if you don't want to watch a movie my my actual recommendation is Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. Uh, have you seen this one, Chris? No, I haven't seen or heard of this one either. Uh, this one is an actual recommendation. It's from 1970. It's an Italian crime drama film directed by Elio Petri. Okay. Um, 
So I watched this just because I it has a Criterion release. Um, I saw it, the cover. I said, yeah, is that something I want to watch? And that is literally all I knew about it. And I think it is really relevant to the political environment today. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about a – it's a police inspector in uh, Italy who is involved in this murder and he keeps like planting – he is – uh, the citizen above suspicion and no one wants to accuse him of having done the crime. So he keeps planning mm-hmm. more and more evidence to where it is undeniable that he did the crime. And then he sort of gets off on the fact that people still won't accuse him of it. So is he testing them or is he like just finding getting, I guess you're saying getting like he gets his jollies from like knowing that people just won't. Yes. He, I, from what I, huh. what I gathered from it is he, um, he wanted to be powerful and he wanted to show how powerful he was by saying, even if I killed somebody, even if I left out all the clues that I killed somebody, even if I told some people that I killed somebody, they still would not come and arrest me. This sounds like a mix of like something Hitchcock and Scorsese. Would yes, make. that is exactly it. And even though it's Italian, you throw in some, some French influence from the seventies mm-hmm. and, and, and that new wave vibe, it's a beautiful picture just cinematically, yeah. but it it's really relevant even today is how it feels just as far as I, I guess Italy in the seventies, maybe the political corruption and all that kind of, kind of can go with what we see today. So I, I, just went with a, a timely recommendation. Doesn't have anything to do with anything we've talked about. But where could one find this film? Um, I got it from my local public library on a Criterion Blu-ray, but it is available to stream on Amazon Prime in in 4K. Uh, hmm. So that's, go, go figure. That's amazing. It seemed it seemed like it would be on Hulu, but no, it it is on Amazon Prime in 4K. So definitely go and watch that. You'd think so with a uh, with a Criterion release. Weird. Yeah. Okay. So my recommendation, um, it, it doesn't exactly tie in. Like, I don't think I would teach this in film history, but it is a director who I think, uh, is important in the conversation of film history or, or maybe the broader conversation of, um, cinema, international cinema, what have you. And it ties in a little bit with stir crazy. Uh, this is the Robert Bresson film from 1956, a man escaped. Um, have you seen this? Jake? I have not. Okay. It's available on Hulu. Um, you can rent it elsewhere. I, I definitely recommend it. I also recommend it if you're interested in Robert Bresson. Um, it's uh, probably a good entry point. It's probably his most straightforward film. It's about a French resistance activist um, who is captured by the Nazis. And it's a very simple plot. Them, he's trying to escape. And here's the thing. The title tells you that he escapes. Yet there is so much tension in this movie um, as you, you know, he sort of goes through his attempts and his his plotting. And he kind of he tries to become a ghost, essentially in his cell. Um, and it is a beautiful, it, it also, I think ties in with the, the thematic thread that I tried to create with, um, you know, images and sound being the foundation, like, uh, Brisson, he does this with a lot of his movies, but this movie in particular has a lot of great uses of sound and silence and sound effects and Foley and all of that to heighten the tension, to really kind of ratchet up, you know, the anxiety in the viewer. Um, and, uh, I, I think, I think it's, uh, if you're, you've ever been curious about, you know, like Althazar, Althazar, Balthazar, or, you know, anything else from Brisson, um, but a little, a little afraid, this is maybe the, the way in to, 
um, to checking out his, his films. It's streaming on Hulu, like I said, or available to rent elsewhere. Uh, that's a man escaped. Okay. So I'm still just going to go watch Passion of Joan of Arc. Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's perfectly <laughs> acceptable as well. That That's the most shameful part of that for me. This whole <laughs> show is like, how have I not how seen did, that? How did you read Zeroville and then not immediately go out and do like a double feature of The Passion of Joan of Arc? And now I'm going to lose the uh, – the. Uh, it was even mentioned in this – in Stir Crazy, uh, tattooed on the back of Vicar's head. What is, uh, what is that movie? Uh, a Place in the Sun. Um, a Place in the Sun, yeah. 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 How did how did you not do a double feature with those two? Like that's all that movie, I, that's all that book was about, right? I I need to do a double feature with those two because I have not seen a place in the sun. You didn't see? Oh, place in the sun's great. A place in the sun would actually be a really great double feature with sunrise. So all well, sorts sunrise, of huh. yeah, all sorts of shame that I'm throwing at you here. Yeah, I, I I feel bad. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go hide in shame. Maybe maybe watch a couple of those before next week. <laughs> okay, well uh, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes, lots of gifts, and a whole lot more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're just the trolling type who's simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or, if you're a narcissist, you can call and leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Louisiana's own Generationals for the music on this week's show. Hear more at Generationals.com. Join us in another fortnight and see if Oliver Stone has finally crafted a movie that I don't hate. We plan to discuss the Edward Snowden biopic, I guess, Snowden, on the next episode. Thanks for listening, folks. Yeah, that's right. We bad. We bad.